All right, if you have your mind, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to be in verse number 9. That's where we left off last week. And I'm going to move a little swiftly through Revelation 6 because um, I want to try to get through Revelation 7 today. I was going to say this at the end, but I guess I'll say it now. There won't be class next week or the week after, I believe, in part because of BBS. And then that next Sunday will be Church Eat Church, and they normally have this flipped out for that. And so, But it's all right because Revelation 7 is an interlude in the book, and John takes a pause, and then I believe in chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, you know, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, so we'll be silent for about two hours of Bible class, and then we'll pick back up that third week. But you remember in Revelation 6, we were looking at the seals, the seven seals, we looked at the first four, these horses come out, there's red for death, there's white for conquering, there's black for scarcity of products, and all that for famine, and then there's the pale horse for death. Well, the fifth seal, and this is where we left off last time, Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 9, it reads, When he opened the fifth seal, that's the Lamb, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Alright, so we got the fifth seal from John and you have these voices or from Jesus really opening the seals. There are these individuals that are souls under the altar who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they have borne. These are martyrs that have given their lives and I think we talked briefly about that last time. In the book of Revelation, seven individuals are described, at least the Christians are, as having been killed. Revelation 12, 11 will say about some. They overcame the dragon because they uh, put their testimony in Jesus Christ. They loved not their lives unto death, and they followed the Lamb wherever he went. These individuals in Revelation 6, 9 through 11 are sort of the same. Romans 8, 35 through 39, that's where Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death. And so... Though we are killed all day long and accounted as sheep to be slaughtered, that was literally for them. Romans 8, 37. Here they are in the presence of God. Okay. They're under the altar. In this ter terminology for under the altar, by the way, I thought about doing this. It would have made your hand out too long. I was going to add the blanks from chapter 6 to this one, but I didn't. So if you still have your sheep from last time, you can fill it in. If not, you can imagine it was there. Okay? All right. Under the altar, this is Old Testament terminology for a place of worship. You remember when Paul was about to be martyred himself, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6, he says, I'm already being, newer translations say, poured out as a drink offering. Old King James says, I'm ready to be offered. This is if he's being offered on the sacrifice or on the sacrificial altar for God. And that's what these individuals have done. They're under the altar, their souls are there, and they're there because they have been slain. Now, here's a question. What do they want? What is their question? What is their question? And we're wrong. Revelation 6 and verse number uh, 10. How long before what? Which is a famous question in the Psalms, by the way. How long? The Psalms will often ask before God does anything. How long before what, Kevin? You avenge our blood. What does that mean? What are they, what are they asking God? Yeah, when are you going to take care of the people that have wronged us? I was talking about this last time, and the kind of prayers we should pray, and on occasion it's right to pray prayers of vengeance. And Miss um, Kim Moyers came up to me after, and she said, well, they really weren't praying for vengeance. She was right, by the way. She says they're really not asking like for God to do it, but instead, if you actually read the text, they're saying, when is God going to do it? So it's not a, 
God, can you avenge our blood? That's a foregone conclusion. They know he will. They're just saying what? When are you going to take care of business? And I'm making the case from this and other passages that it's a biblical idea to pray those kind of prayers, to want that kind of thing to happen, and even to expect it to take place. And I told you we'd talk a little bit more about this. So go to Psalm 137. There in the book of Psalms, it's a book of praise, a lot of devotionals on the book of Psalms, but then there are what are called the Psalms of Imprecation or Imprecatory Psalms. And a lot of people shy away from those Psalms. Scholars have found all kinds of ways to try to get around the Imprecatory Psalms, saying things like, well, maybe that was just because of Old Testament terminology, or maybe we can spiritualize them today. But when you read the Imprecatory Psalms, and that just means Psalms of Cursing, where these individuals call down curses on their enemies, it's interesting. These are in the Bible, and they're inspired, and they're God-approved. Psalm 137 may be the strongest one in the Bible. Look at what the psalmist is praying. He says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our harps. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they're being taunted. Look at verse 4. How long will we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now here's his prayer. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, and how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who does what? takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's a prayer. That's in the Bible. The Edomites, the people that descend from Esau's line, he says, hey, when are you going to take care of them for what they've done? Here's another one. Psalm 109. There are a bunch of these, by the way, and we'll talk about why this is all right to pray. Now, well, we'll say more about if it's all right to pray and how to do this. I don't think you should necessarily add the words of Psalm 137 directly to your devotional prayers. Maybe your boss is frustrating you or something like that. But the spirit of these prayers and that God be a God of vengeance is really a big deal. I'm in Psalm 109 and let's just drop down to verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. That's his enemy. Against him let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted sin. Now here we go. Look at verse 8. This is the wicked. May his days be few. May another take his office. Quotation about Judas. May his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruit of, fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off and his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. We can read more, but you might imagine why people are shook when they read this and they say, well, surely Christians shouldn't pray this way, or they try to find some way around these kinds of prayers, but there are a lot of them in the Bible. Now, this is poetic in the book of Psalms, but in a nutshell, what is the psalmist praying for? The same thing that people in Revelation were begging as they run to the altar, that God would do what? That God... Avenge, yeah, that God would be just, that God would be God. We don't get to change God and say, well, I would never pray anything like that. And by the way, somebody says, well, I couldn't pray that because I'm a sinner. And I know, was David a sinner? Were the people under the altar sinners? And so here you go. You've got people in the Bible praying these kinds of things. How do you harmonize this with pray for your enemies? Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 
Um, Romans 12, 19 through 21. Dearly beloved, don't avenge for yourselves, but leave place for wrath. How do we put all those things together? Jesus on the one hand is saying, do what for your enemies? Pray for your enemies. Do good to them. Be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And then you have this. And we looked at other New Testament passages where Paul says in places like 2 Timothy 4 and verse 14. God, remember Alexander the coppersmith and the things he did to me and may the Lord repay him for the evil he's done. How do you bring those things together, Andy? One thing is when we pray for it, we're putting it in its proper place. It is not our job to be the instruments of vengeance. It is God's job to do the vengeance. And, and to do otherwise would be to steal from God because God says it is mine to avenge. I will repay. All right. So, yeah, we can't take vengeance into our own hands. And you've got to credit David and... John and those under the altar and Paul for always saying, let God be the one that takes the vengeance. And we've got to remove ourselves. The Bible doesn't say no vengeance is coming. It just says it's not your job and my job to avenge. But here's the other thing. If this wasn't true, if God would not rain down justice on people that are wicked in the world, what would that say about God? If God just sort of let everything go, people that don't believe in God would say, well, of course, you know there are people that don't believe in God. Somebody has said the strongest argument against believing in God from the atheists is the argument of pain, evil, and suffering. And you think about suffering inflicted on other people. How many people have been molested and abused and trafficked and murdered and harmed? And they're saying, God, where are you? There's a sense in which when we pray prayers for God's justice, we're not only praying for God to do what's right, but we're also praying for God to be vindicated. God, show up and show these people you have not been sleeping on the job, that you do get it right, and you will make things right and silence those that would speak otherwise. And so to pray that God would show up and avenge is to say, God was telling you, yes, this person harmed you, you don't do anything, but I'm going to do something. Otherwise, you suffer righteously in vain. Well, God, I would tell persecution. I would tell retaliation. I thought you were going to do something. Are you going to do it? And you will. And faith says we wait on him to do that. Um, well, I'll say more about how we can pray this maybe at the end. How, do they have, how long do they have to wait? Look at Revelation 6 and verse 11. Revelation 6 and verse 11 says, Those that were under the altar, they asked God about vengeance, and they're told to wait how much longer? A little while longer. This tells us several things. People that are in heaven, they suffered. These individuals have been martyred. They're told to wait a little while longer. Just because they're God's people doesn't mean God's going to alleviate their suffering. God says there's going to be a little bit longer before I avenge. But that until in your Bible says that it won't last forever. And so there is coming a day when vindication will come. Christians are told to hold on, not that God was removing all of their problems. So these individuals that are causing trouble, there are more people on the earth that were going to suffer at the hands of the Romans, and they were told to just hang in there. Sometimes God doesn't remove our difficulties. Sometimes God gives us stronger backs to bear the load. I know we wish it wasn't that way, but sometimes God says, okay, I'm not getting you out of this, but I'm going to get you through it. And we might wish it were the other way, but Keller has said, and he's right, if you knew what God knew, you would pray for exactly what God gives. And so they say, God, when are you going to get us out of this? God says, well, there's a little bit more that has to happen. Other people have to suffer. And then he says, until it be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see that? God knows more martyrs are going to be killed. Question, could God have stopped that from happening if he wanted to? He could have, but he chose not to. And faith is trusting that God always, always gets these things right. All right, this is the sixth seal, 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's chapter 4 and 5. That's God and the Son. And verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who can stand? Okay, what is this about, and how do we know it's not the end of the world? What is all of this about? John says he saw what in verse 12? There's a great what? Give me some of what we see, one at a time. Great earthquake. Okay, what else? Sun black. What else? Moonlight blood. So what is this describing, and why isn't it the end of the world? Does it sound like the end of the world? True or false? True or false? True. We know it's not, though. Why? I said, because you're telling me right now. It's all said and done. How do we know? You've been in the prophets on Wednesday night. How do you know this isn't the end of the world? There's still several chapters in the book. Okay, well, that's an issue. <laughs> Anthony to the rescue. That's right. So we still got more to go. Right? We got 16 more chapters. There's still more. But the other part is, that was the cooler answer, by the way. The other part is, um, this language is used all throughout the Bible. Several times in the Bible, you're going to find this language, specifically. Moon turned to blood, stars falling, and all this, and it always describes. And I hope I can just keep drilling this down so when you see it in the Bible, you won't think end of the world, because it's not. It's describing the end of somebody's world, and it typically means a system, a nation, or a world power that looks as fixed as the stars. But as fixed as the sun in heaven is on its way down. And John, remember, the biggest help in studying the book of Revelation is a knowledge of what? The what? Everybody. Old Testament. Go to Isaiah 13. And we'll have to do this quick. You're going to have to flip quickly. But I want to show you these. And maybe you need to write a key in your Bible or something. Because somebody's going to see bad weather or something and say, oh no, looks like the moon's turning to blood or something. And you'll read these passages in your daily Bible read. You'll forget what we talked about. And you might think it's the end of the world. It never is. At least in this regard. Isaiah 13 is about the fall of Babylon. Look at verse number 9. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation to destroy its sinners from it and what's going to happen verse 10 the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light the sun will be dark as it's rising and the moon will not shed its light i will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity i will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless babylon's gonna fall and it'll be like the sun stopped shining the moon no longer gave her light go to joel chapter 2 and this is probably the easiest proof because what Joel says happens, Peter says on the day of Pentecost, this is that, which Joel said. I'm in Joel 2, and notice verse number, we'll start at verse 30. Joel 2 and verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Now what's going to happen? Verse 31, what do we got? Sun turned to darkness, what else? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. All right, Isaiah 13, Babylon's fallen. Joel 2, he says this is going to happen. Peter stands up, and Acts 2, he preaches. He says this is what Joel said. What's happening here? Old covenant system done away, new covenant system ushered in. Uh, let's just do a few more just for, just for practice, okay? Go to Ezekiel 32. Ezekiel 32, and this is about Egypt falling. And you can see these headings in your Bible. This is nothing to see. It's about Egypt on her way down. Ezekiel 32. And notice verse 6. 
Ezekiel 32, 6, God says, I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give us light. Egypt thought she was standing and fixed, and God says, no more Egypt. There are more, but we won't do them. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6, Nahum 1 and verse 5, Michael 1 and verse 4. This language is not the end of the world. Revelation chapter 6 is not about the end of the world, but it is about the end of Rome's world. Rome as an empire and a dynasty was on her way down for what she had done to the Christians. And when John opens the sixth seal, he says, this is exactly what I've seen. Now, if you had a catalog of Old Testament knowledge, when you got to this as a Christian, this would be your hallelujah. You would be like, finally, what happened to Babylon and Egypt and Assyria, it's going to happen to Rome too. And that kind of answers the fifth seal. How long? Well, not long, because eventually they're on their way down. All right. The fate of those who dwell on the earth, John says, this is going to happen to those individuals that are on the earth. If you look at verse number 15... The kings of the earth, um, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone slave and free, hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks. We talked about numbers in the book of Revelation. John mentioned seven different categories. Kings, great ones, generals, rich, strong and powerful, <coughs> slave and free. And what's going to happen to these people? What's going to happen to them? In verse number... Um, 15 and 16, what do they want to happen to them? They want to hide. You know, men have been trying to hide from God for a long time. Sweet in his commentary on Revelation says, the greatest fear for the sinner is not death, but the presence of God. What did Adam and Eve do? Genesis 3 and verse 8. God shows up and they try to do what? Hide. Isaiah 2 and verse 10, Isaiah 2 and 19. People that are doing wicked things in the old covenant, when God shows up, they try to hide. They say, we would rather the rocks fall on us, the mountains and the hills cover us. What do they need to do instead of hide? Though starts with re, ends with pen. Yeah. There we go. Why don't they just repent? At the end of chapter 9, you're going to see God's bringing on more calamity, and he's going to say, even then, people didn't repent. It's easier to hide than to make things right with God. It's easier to just kind of tuck away and not do the right thing than to say, I'm wrong and I need to straighten it out. Revelation 6, 17 ends the chapter by saying, this is what these folks are saying that are afraid. The great day of his wrath has come. That's God and the Lamb. And what? What's their question? Who is able to stand? That means who can tolerate this great wrath of God coming? The answer to that question is in chapter 7 and verse 9, by the way. Who can stand the faithful Christian, but not the ungodly and the worldly? The great day of his wrath has come. When you read passages like Revelation 6, um, 12 through 17, and you see the sun, the stars, the moon, what you should not be concerned about is whether that's the end of the world or what's going to happen to you. The question that should rise to the horizon for us is this. Am I in Christ? Because if I'm not, the great day of his wrath is coming. Who can stand? If you are in Christ, the answer to that question, you can write it right in the margin at the end of this sentence. Me. Those in Christ, the faithful Christian. Who can stand? God's person. Because God's able to make him stand, Romans 14, 8 through 11. And so you don't have to be afraid. But if you're not in Christ, you should be definitely afraid. All right, hearing and keeping Revelation 6, and then on to Revelation chapter 7. Number one, what are the lessons? Everybody suffers, but only Christians can make something or make good use of their suffering. Nobody in this gets out of this life without suffering. Make your suffering count. And the only way to make your suffering count is to be in Christ. Everybody's going to suffer. Sometimes the atheist says, well, I don't believe in God because of evil, pain, and suffering. That doesn't remove the suffering. It just removes the possibility that there's a meaning behind the suffering. Stay in Christ. Make your suffering count. God's going to give a return 
James 1, 2 through 4, James says, count it all joy. See, Christians can make it count when you fall into various trials because our trials actually work and produce something. If you're not in Christ, though, what that means is that the suffering you experience in this world, if you die outside of Jesus Christ, the suffering that is yours now is the lightest amount of suffering you'll ever have. Number two, rejecting Jesus means unending suffering. And that kind of piggybacks on the last point. The great day of his wrath will come and you won't be able to stand. It'll be eternal torment and eternal suffering. Wickedness continues until Jesus returns. Sometimes you turn on the news and people say, how much worse can it get? Paul says, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. For reasons probably beyond our ability to comprehend, God allows it to take place. Those under the altar say what? What's their question? How long or when are you going to let up? And God says, there's more to be done. And you might think of some reasons why that's the case, but suffering in this world will continue until Jesus comes to end it. And we don't like that. We need to accept it, though, and do what God would have us to do in the meantime. Pray like the Bible teaches you to pray. This is about the imprecatory prayers and about people that pray for justice. And we need to learn to pray like the Bible, not like we want to pray. Not like we think God would have us pray because in our minds, our God would never do any harm. There aren't any wicked people, and God loves everybody just the same. Psalm 7 and verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Seven things God hates, Proverbs 6, 13 through 17. Pray like the Bible teaches you to pray. Now, if you're happy about praying psalms of imprecation, you probably should be praying them. Right? If you're like, finally, I've been waiting to say some things about him. I'm going to curse this person out in the name of God. That's probably not right. But if you wouldn't pray prayers of justice and of God's wrath and vengeance, you don't have a holistic framework of who God is. So what does that look like? It probably looks like this. Praying for wicked and evil people to be brought to repentance. Praying that people that are right this moment thinking of evil things that they would do in the world. Micah says some people sit on their beds and plot evil. Micah 2 and verse 1. Praying that their plans be upended and thwarted and that they be brought to repentance. But that if they're not, that God will bring down his wrath on them so that others won't do the same thing and so that nobody would ever say, God just lets anything go in his world. It's a balance of praying for the repentance and restoration of people, not taking vengeance into our own hands, but desiring that God be who he is because there really is evil in the world. There really are wicked people that would do anything and everything if God let them. And so we need to be praying for God's justice and learn to pray just like the Bible says. You know the Bible assumes you'll have enemies. That's why it says pray for them. If you say, well, everybody loves me, I wouldn't have an enemy. I wouldn't know when to pray those prayers. We might not be living as distinctly as God wants us to or being honest about the lives that we're living. David was real and honest about his hardships, and so was Paul, and even people under the altar. Their lives are over. They could say, we're in heaven. Hey, this is forgotten about. They said, no, that hurt. That was wrong. And God, we hope you make it right. And that doesn't make them less than. And you're not more spiritual than them if you wouldn't pray that prayer. God didn't rebuke him for the prayer. He says, just give me time, and I'm going to deal with it. And here's the last thing on this. Only those who bow can stand. The great day of his wrath is coming. Who will be able to stand? Those who have first bowed. Those who have first submitted to his will. Revelation 6, 17. Those are the individuals that can truly one day stand before him. Okay. Revelation chapter 7. The seal and the safe. This chapter served as an interlude or a break in between the seven seals. So we're six seals in, but there were seven on the scroll. And so sometimes in Revelation, there will be six bowls or six trumpets. And when you get to number six... There'll just be kind of a pause and a praise break until you get to the seventh one. So you won't see the seventh seal until Revelation 8 and verse 1. But these interludes serve as kind of a pause or a praise break. And there's a similar thing with the trumpets in Revelation chapter 10. 
Keep in mind the last thing we saw at the end of chapter 6, and that was people crying out and saying, the great day of God's wrath has come. Who can stand? Revelation 7 is a popular chapter in the book. There's the 144,000, and I hope y'all are going to teach me what that means and what that's all about. But we're going to do some of that. There's this talk about the various people and nations that are present before God. And we're going to talk about what this means about our worship and how we interact with God. All right, Revelation 7. Let's read verses 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth and holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. All right, so the first thing we have is um, heaven holding back her wrath. Now, look at Revelation 7 and verse 1. There are how many angels? Four. What are they doing? What was that? There. Protecting. I hear some people mumbling some stuff. I got most of it holding back. Right. That's what's happening. Throughout the book of Revelation, there are angels that are given specific tasks. An angel is a messenger, but also a servant of God. Here are some of the tasks that they have. Number one, one time an angel in the book is said to um, reveal the message to John. Revelation 1 and verse 1. God sent and signified it by his servant, his angel, to his servant John. So one angel throughout the book had the job of escorting John around and saying, hey, look at that, John. And hey, look over here. There are other angels. There's one that has power over fire. Revelation 14, 18. One has power over water, Revelation 16 and verse 5. And these angels here have control over the winds of the earth. So this is their responsibility. Previously, we talked about numbers in the book of Revelation and what they mean. Four is a number that deals with creation, with the world. We think about four directions, north, south, east, and west. And there are the four corners of the earth. Um, we shouldn't take John to be unscientific or affirming a flat earth. Sorry to bust your bubble there. Um, Isaiah uses the same phrase metaphorically in Isaiah 11 and verse 12. It's just the way that God says everywhere. So they're holding back these four winds that are going to destroy, destroy some things. The Bible often associates wind with the power and presence of God. So that's why you see it here. Um, quickly, go to Psalm 18 just for an example of this. Psalm 18, and the first person that gets there... Can you read verse 10? Psalm 18 and verse 10. Hold your hand in Revelation so we won't have to find it again. Psalm 18, 10, nice and loud. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. All right, so David and that psalm is praising God for his power, and God has said, come swiftly with wind. So in Revelation 7, they're holding back the four winds. What do you think the winds represent in Revelation 7 and verse 1? Probably. What was that? Somebody said judgment? Who said that? Judgment. Yeah, that's right. Judgment. So it's about God's coming judgment. What do you know about the wind? Put the Bible aside. What do you know about wind? It's strong. That's, that's great. And what else? You can't see it. And doesn't that make sense to attribute that to the power of God in the world? God's power and judgment in the world is often unseen, but it's still powerful and effective. And they're holding back. Um, it's interesting in the book of Revelation, a book about judgment and punishment, how many times you read something like this. This just says something about the character of God. How many times in the book of Revelation you read things like, don't do it yet, God. Hold back, God. Give them a chance. Don't destroy everything. Hey, only a third of the earth, only a fourth part burn it up. Don't destroy everything. God is not a trigger-happy God. It's not who he is. He really doesn't want to spank or chastise anybody. If God could have it his way, every one of his people 
Everybody made his image. We'll walk right in line with his word, and he'd never have to say a word of rebuke to us. God doesn't want to do it. These angels show up, and they're told, hey, hold back the four winds. At least one angel says that when he shows up in verse 2. Notice, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. He has the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the angels, giving power. And he says in verse 3, don't harm who? Don't harm what, I should say? Earth, what else? Sea, what else? Trees until what? Serpents. Serpents of God in their foreheads. Now this goes directly back to Ezekiel 9. Like some of these are illusions. This is Ezekiel 9, 3 through 10. Go to Ezekiel 9, 3 through 10. In Ezekiel, God's people are wicked. They're going to Babylonian captivity because they've disobeyed. In the ancient world, a seal was how a dignitary would sign images and say, hey, my stamp of approval is on this. Anybody send their kids to camp and write their names in their t-shirts? That doesn't help them keep up with it, but you try. <laughs> right? That just means, hey, this is my property. That's what this is all about. This belongs to. And when God seals his people, he's saying, hey, I'm pouring out wrath on all the people in the world, but this person's my property. This person belongs to me. He or she won't be swept up with everybody else. You know you're sealed if you're a Christian and that when we think about God's wrath coming on our world because of wicked and evil things, God's not going to mix us up. Look at Ezekiel chapter 9 and notice verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from the chair on which it rested to the threshold of the house. He called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a what? A mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to pass, and to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye will not spare. You will show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, women. But do not touch anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So in the days of Ezekiel, he says the same thing. Go through and slaughter everybody except those individuals that have the what? The mark or the seal. This is going to be important. Later on in the book of Revelation, everybody knows about that mark. They don't know about this one. The mark of the what? The mark of the beast. They're saying if you get a chip in your credit card and all of this, then you've got the mark of the beast, the tattoo. Listen, you're worried about the wrong mark. I'm telling you. John says the mark you really need to be concerned with is if you were sealed by God. If you've got that one, it doesn't matter. We'll talk later about this one. But the mark of the beast was saying these Christians couldn't shop. They couldn't buy things. They couldn't do. And John said, you're not missing out. I'm telling you, you're not missing out because you're sealed and marked by God. His seal authenticates you as being his person, and you've got nothing to fear. God is not going to pour out his wrath until these individuals have been sealed. God's going to make sure. Aren't they already God's people, though? What does this mean about sealing people? Why would he mark them and say, okay, you belong to me? What is that all about? To set them apart. It's a reminder for them to say, hey, God has not forgotten. Where else do you see this in the Bible? Not just Ezekiel, but where? Ian, I saw you. I'm coming right back to you. Hannah's getting all the answers. She's cheap. She's right, though. You remember the Passover? That's where this starts. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt against both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt. I'll execute judgment. I'm the Lord. Exodus 12, 12. God said, put the blood where? And when, I, when, it, when God passes through, he's going to do what? To everybody that's sealed or marked. Pass by. If you're not marked or sealed, then what's going to happen? Death's going to be yours. Judgment's going to be the same way. John's playing God's greatest hits. Exodus, Ezekiel, and he's saying in the end, everybody in the world has to be marked. And if you're not marked or sealed, the judgment and punishment that's coming, it will be yours. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The foundation of God stands sure having this seal. 
The Lord knows those that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That means if God seals you, you've got a responsibility to live like you belong to God, or you'll erase your seal. 2 Timothy 2.19, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. God knows those that are his. How does God know that we belong to him? What would be the seal? What would you say? Ms. Vivian says the way we live. Yeah, first it starts to obey the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as a seal or a down payment for us. But then it's the way you live. I mean, if you just come to worship and you don't really believe this or practice Christianity the way you should, you'll be swept up with the others. But the encouragement for Christians is that they would live the way that God would have them to so that they wouldn't be destroyed. Where are they going to be sealed? In their what? In their forehead. This would have been the obvious place to see it, either on the hand or on the forehead. Neil preached last Sunday morning about families. you remember that? And the anchors to the family. In Deuteronomy 6, he quoted a passage where God says, I want you to write these commandments on your heart, and they'll be as frontlets before your eyes. This idea is throughout the Bible. Mark your children with the Word of God. Write it on their hands. John's picking up on that same imagery from Deuteronomy 6, 8, and he's saying, I want you to be marked in this way as God's people. All right. Now let's get to the 144,000. Four through eight. Who wants to read that? Revelation 7, 4 through 8. Whoever reads won't have to tell me who they are. Everybody else will have to answer who the 144,000 are. All right. Who wants to read that? Revelation 7, 4 through 8. Go ahead. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. The tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. I think this is important, especially for the interpretation of this. How many does John see sealed? It's a trick question, by the way. How many does he see? Just tell me what you find. Quick. Somebody said how many? 144,000. John didn't say he saw anything. He didn't, did he? See, this is where people read, they, they just imagine that John said things John didn't say. John said he heard 144,000. That is key to the interpretation of who these people are. Now, the 144,000, there are five different interpretation options or interpretive options of who they could be. We're going to get to who they are. We, we've got time. Number one, some people say this is the remnant of ethnic Israel, and that means this. The 144,000 describe the faithful Israelites down through the ages who will be saved because they held fast. That's one interpretive decision that people sometimes make. Option number two is it's symbolic. And it means that one day all of Israel will be saved. And people go to passages like Romans 11, 24 through 26, where Paul says all of Israel will be saved. And what does that mean? And they say, hey, one day every Jewish person is going to be saved. God's going to save all Israel. The 144,000 represent those folks. Interpretive option number three is that it's symbolic. And these are the Jews that were the remnant when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, and it's probably a reference to those folks. All right, number four, the complete number of God's faithful. So 12,000 represents um, the Old Testament faithful, and then 12,000 represents New Testament Christians. And then interpretive option number five is 
that this number 144,000 is symbolic and it stands for the complete number of the redeemed regardless of their ethnicity. So here are the options. All right, let's do a little trial run, a little practice. Who believes it's option number one? Who believes it's option number two? Who believes it's option number three? She's lost count. Hillary's lost count. Okay. Who believes it's option number four up here? Who thinks it's option number four? That the 144,000 represent all the Old Testament faithful, all the New Testament faithful. Andy's shaking. We got some. Who believes it's option number five? The rest of y'all won't play. Okay. All right. So, yeah, these are your five options. Um, What's the difference in four or five? Four or five. Okay, so the difference is this. Number four is Old and New Testament faithful. Number five is specifically Christians that have been redeemed from all nations. So number four, some people say, hey, the Jews and Christians all together. Or some people would say it just represents the faithful Jewish people and then the, the numberless multitude that John will see in verse 9. That's the Christians. All right. Let's see what we got here. All right, so this listing is unusual. I'll say a few things about it. I believe number five is correct, by the way. I believe it's the faithful Christians from all nations, and I think we'll see why in a minute. But just some things to note about this listing and why it's unusual. All right, number one, Judah is first. That's never true. Why would Judah be first in this book? Jesus is from the tribe of where? Judah. Who is Israel's oldest son? Starts with Ru, ends with Ben. Gotcha. I got your back. I know y'all. I think y'all know this stuff. All right. So Judas first. That's a reference to Jesus. There's a reason for that. This is highlighting the Christian age. Number two about this list: Joseph and Manasseh are mentioned. That's a no-no because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They represent tribes, not Joseph. For Joseph and Manasseh to be mentioned, John's doing something symbolic, not literal, because you wouldn't have the representation of Joseph and one of Joseph's sons. John can't be going for a literal rendering of the 12 tribes. Number three, the tribe of Dan is not included. You read the list, Dan's not included. I don't know if you know this, but Dan is mentioned in the Old Testament as a tribe of Israel. Every single time you read about the tribe of Dan in the Old Testament, it's always wicked. They're the people that have the Sodom and Gomorrah episode in Judges 18 and verse 38. The tribe of Dan is the most wicked tribe. The book of Revelation is about don't give in to the who? The Romans and idolatry. And so John would leave out this tribe that always practiced idolatry and always went with the flow. He leaves out Dan on purpose because he's trying to communicate something about God's word. And then here's the other thing. In the Old Testament, the tribes of Israel are listed 18 different times. John copies none of those. So the listing that John gives doesn't match up with anything you find in the Old Testament. So John's not going to for a duplication of what we find in the Old Testament. And then let me just say a brief word about the Jehovah's Witness. I'm not picking on them. I've studied with them at length one time, and we talked about 144,000. And you can go to their website, and they'll tell you what they believe. You can read their article on the 144,000. They would say the 144,000 represent the people that will live in heaven with God, like in the heavenly realm. That's 144,000. And everybody else who is saved and redeemed will occupy the earth. And they will. this will be their heaven, but the special select will be up there in heaven with God and everybody else won't. Um, that's problematic for several reasons. Number one, the Bible teaches that all faithful Christians are going to enjoy the same reward. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. And um, it says everybody's going to be in the same place. The righteous rise to eternal life. John 5, 28 through 29. This 144,000 is a symbolic way of describing the saved from every age in Christ. 
All right. So if this is a representation of the church, why would John refer to them as the? Um, why would John refer to them with the twelve tribes? What's the whole point of that? Go to a few passages with me where in the New Testament, the New Testament refers to Christians as like the new Jews. Go to Romans chapter two and verse twenty-nine. Romans two twenty-nine. I'm not worried about the time, guys. We will make it. Trust me. I'm a little worried. All right. A little. Worried. A little worried. We still got time though. Trust me. Romans 2, 29. Look, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Go to Galatians 6 and verse 16. Galatians 6 and verse 16. This is about the church. Paul says, and all who walk by this rule, may peace and mercy be on them and upon the Israel of God. By the time you get to the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ is now described as the new Israel. That's just, just the way the Bible describes us as people of God. We're God's new nation and God's new people. And so when John lists these 12 tribes symbolically, and then he uses these terms, these numbers, 12 times 12 times 1,000, it's John's way of taking the number of the people of God and emphasizing it for its completeness. And he's saying, here are the saved people of God. Somebody says, all right, but that, how would I know that otherwise? Like, you can teach me that. How can I know it for sure? Let's read Revelation 7, 9 through 17, and then we'll end our class. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. John says, After this I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, all tribes and people, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence they will hunger no more, thirst no more. Sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd and guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All right. John says that he saw this innumerable multitude. It's just like Revelation 5. You remember when John was crying because nobody could open the scroll and the elders showed up and he says, hey, one of the four living creatures says, hey, there is a Lamb from the tribe of Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And John looks, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a what? A lamb that looks like it's been slain. John hears what sounds like 144,000, but when he actually turns and sees, it's not 144,000. It's a numberless multitude that nobody can number. It was representative of what John saw. John thought he'd see a lion, he saw a lamb. He thought he'd see 144,000. There's this numberless multitude from all different places and all different nations, and they resemble the same. Jesus told his disciples to go into all the earth and preach the gospel, and that's why we see all of these people present. These are those redeemed individuals. And these terms are the terms that they've seen in verse 12. Um, well, let me just back up and say something about what they're holding, and then I'll say something about the terms. What are they wearing in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9? White robes. White represents what in the book of Revelation? Conquering. They conquered through who? What are they holding? Palm branches. Where have you seen that before? 
people praising God, holding palm branches. Triumphal entry into Jerusalem, John 12, 31, right? This is about praise toward God. Often means giving the ruler his rightful due. That's what you have. This is the saved. These are the saved. These aren't two different groups. There's one group. John heard them, and now he sees them. And this is what they say in Revelation 7 and verse 12. They praise God. And we should think about these words when we sing. They use highly theological language. Amen, which means so be it. Blessing, speaking of God in favorable terms. Wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power. One of the, one of the elders will say to John, who are these people? And John says, you know. And he describes them as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When did that happen? When did they wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb? When they were baptized, when they obeyed the gospel. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's a sense in which, metaphorically speaking, John saw you there. You just hold on and remain faithful in Christ. John saw John there. How's that for a movie, right? John saw his brother James and Paul and every faithful Christian, a numberless multitude that nobody could number, standing there praising God, and there are some things they'll never experience again. Um, they'll serve God day and night, Revelation 7, 15. They won't be hungry or thirsty. That's from Isaiah 49 and verse 10. They'll be shepherded by Jesus with a Psalm 23, 1, say, the Lord is my what? My shepherd. There'll be springs of living water, and God will wipe away all of their tears. This is a praise break in between the seals. More wrath is coming. Christians will live in that wrath. But John says, your future is bright. God's going to do great things. You're not outnumbered by the Romans. There's more of you than you realize. And be faithful until the end. All right, thanks for working. Bye, bless.